everybody. Welcome again to Northridge Church. My name's Aaron Hickson. I'm one of the pastors. I hang out down at the Henrietta campus normally, and I'm super glad to be sharing with you today as we're in week three of our series, A Life That Matters. And as we're kicking off, I just want to ask you a question to think about someone that you admire. And when you think about someone that you admire, you know, they're good at life. And um, what are some characteristics that you think of when you think of this person? Okay. Are they good looking? Are they hilarious? Um, are, are you thinking about me right now? Uh, no. Okay. No, sorry. I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Seriously, who do you think of? Are, are they sacrificial? Are they honest? Are, are they generous? Are they encouraging? What's true of these people? Well, I bet if you had long enough to think about it, one of the traits that might show up is that this person or these people are generous. They're characterized by generosity. Uh, and they're the kind of people who give a lot, even if they don't have a lot. And I'm not talking about just to like charities. I'm saying like they give to all kinds of people in their life. My wife Lauren and I have been the recipients of some lavish generosity in our life. Uh, it's meant the world to us. Uh, I can think of, we both had internships in college and we lived with families who let us live with them for free. Um, our first dining room table was given to us and we used that thing for years. I'm pretty sure every single piece of clothing that our two boys have ever worn was given to us by someone. I don't know why my older sister had 700 pairs of pants for her firstborn son, but I'm super grateful for it because it's, it's made a difference for us. And if you're like me, when you experience generosity, it inspires me. And when I experience generosity, it makes me want to stop thinking about myself and start thinking about others. In other words, generosity pushes me more toward a life that matters. And that's what we've been talking about all throughout this series. We've been talking about what we need to do in order to spend our lives on things that will matter. Not just for now, but for all of eternity. And Drew said in week one of the series that we need to begin with the end in mind. In other words, we need to recognize the inevitability of death and let that perspective shape the way that we approach our life. And then in week two, he said that we need to make the most of every opportunity. In other words, I need to give the right things the right attention. And he applied that specifically to relationships and said that we need to capture more moments than we miss. And this week, we're going to be exploring that same idea of how to make sure that the right things get the right attention, but we're going to be applying it specifically to our resources or to our finances. Because look, as uncomfortable as it is to talk about money, it is literally one of the most important topics in our lives. I would bet that especially in a time like this, your personal finances have crossed your mind somewhere between one and a thousand times a day during all of this, right? I mean, it's, it's everything from how can I resist this lightning deal on Amazon? And you know you're bored when you're scrolling Amazon as if it were social media, right? <laughs> but that keeps happening to me. But anyway, um, but, or maybe, maybe you're out of work right now. And so you're behind on your bills. And so you're thinking about money all the time. It doesn't really matter your circumstances. Money is part of our everyday life. And it's so important that I honestly think it just has to be factored in when we're evaluating how we're supposed to live a life that matters. And I'm personally so thankful that we have examples from the Bible where actual real life people deal with the same questions that we deal with. And because they had to handle these tensions, we can learn from their mistakes and from their victories. And so today we're going to be looking at the responses of two men who were faced with the tension between living a life that matters and their bank account. And let's see what we can learn from these two men. You can go ahead and look, turn to Luke chapter 18 if you want to be there with us. Um, 
uh, you can follow along there in your Bibles. That's where we're going to find the first guy, guy number one. And this guy is usually nicknamed the rich young ruler, okay? But we're just going to call him Richie because it's easier to say, and we're going to say his name a lot, all right? So we're calling him Richie, and here's the context. Jesus is teaching, which he does a lot of, and this guy comes to him, and he asks a pretty deep question. Um, but it's actually one that I'm going to bet you've asked at some point in your life. You probably didn't use these words, but I think we've all wondered about this question. So in Luke 18, verse 18, he says this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Now, why is that question significant or relevant to us at all? Well, what it tells us is that this guy is contemplating big questions about life after death. He's thinking about his mortality. He wants to know what's going to happen to me after I die. And so Jesus begins a conversation with him to kind of evaluate how he's doing on faith. And first he asks him how well, hey Richie, how well are you doing on following the Ten Commandments? Which is like, wow, okay, tough questions. We're getting started right in here. And Richie says in verse 21, all of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Which, honestly, that's pretty impressive. Like, not bad, bro. That's a pretty strong start here. But Jesus as usual, he doesn't play around. So his next statement is about an area where Richie ain't doing so hot. And what is it? Jesus says in verse 22, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So this just got real, right? Um, this is where we see the connection between a life that matters and our money or our resources. Jesus knows the condition of this guy's heart, all right? And so what he does is he goes after the area where he is least prepared to give over his life to God, which happens to be his money. Basically, J Jesus is just using this statement to expose him. He puts him right on the spot, and how does Richie respond? Look at verse 23. He says, when he heard this, he became very sad. Why? Because he was very wealthy. Very wealthy. You see, this guy, he wants eternal life. He wants a life that counts, but something else has a grip on his heart. His wealth is a barrier to his faith. Uh, but I, I need to pause. I think it's important that we notice this. What Jesus is not saying is that selling everything is the way to earn salvation, okay? Nobody earns their way into a relationship with God, and they definitely don't do that by selling their stuff on Facebook Marketplace, okay? That's, that's not how this works. What Jesus is doing here is he's just simply proving the point that Richie's heart is not fully committed to God at this point. He wasn't interested in eternal life God's way. He was interested in safety and security after death, just like he was interested in safety and security in his wealth during life. So he ends up walking away from the Son of God. Why? Why does he do this? Well, he does it because he was wealthy. That's what it says, right? And isn't that interesting? Because normally we would think that people who are bitter at God about money would be people who don't have a lot of money. But what we see here is actually, it's the people who have lots of money that allow their finances to get in the way of their faith. Wealth is actually a bigger hindrance to faith than poverty. Can you believe that? That's, that sounds kind of crazy, but look at what Jesus says in verse 24. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this dynamic, it plays out in Richie's life, just like in our life, just like in so many other people's lives. Richie probably died and was buried just like King Tut, <laughs> literally caked in gold. 
gold that you can now go to a museum somewhere and look at thousands of years later. But the thing is, it's of no value to him now that he's dead. So why do we do this? <laughs> why in the world do we self-sabotage like this? Why do we exchange what is in our eternal best interest for something as silly and trivial as wealth? Well, I think we do this because we're harboring at least these three wrong beliefs about money. At least these three. And first of all, I think we can see we believe it's my money. It's my money. That's the first wrong belief. And I don't know Richie's motives for sure. I mean, we aren't told. But I'm pretty sure he's thinking something like this, all right? The reason he can't get down with Jesus' whole plan about eternal life is that it's going to require him parting with what he believed was his, And I can't blame him. I mean, I'm just like him in this area when it comes to my money. I believe my money is mine. Now, you know, on the surface, that doesn't sound like that bad of a statement. (laughs) Because, I mean, my money is mine, right? Most of the time, it basically feels like it belongs to New York State. But if it's in my account, it kind of feels like it's mine, right? And that's that's true. (laughs) Private property isn't wrong. But at the same time, we have a balance that we have to keep in mind. Because over time... I think most of us allow ownership to lure us into believing that if I hold the title to that car, or if the account has my name on it, then it's mine to use however I want. But in the end, that's ultimately just a dangerous mentality. It's the exact mentality that gets Richie into trouble. What we begin to believe over time is that no one, not even God himself, should be able to have access to our belongings. But what happens is then our belongings, they begin this super sneaky process of taking us captive. And without even realizing it, the things that we thought we owned begin to own us. So that's the first belief. But I think that there's a second dangerous assumption that puts us in the same position that Richie was in. The second wrong belief or the question that we end up asking is, what about my needs? What about my needs? That's what we end up thinking about money is it's that about my needs. And again, this is a perfectly good question. At some level, I mean, especially in a time like this. Now, a lot of people are struggling financially, and it is perfectly reasonable to take your basic needs into consideration. But for the vast majority of people, it's really not about whether or not we can put food on the table. For most people, this question is really just, it's a fear about having to experience a lifestyle change. Because the idea of giving a percentage of our money away, it ends up being terrifying because we've already run our lives all the way up to the margin. In fact, beyond the margin, we're already spending more than we make. So we recognize if I'm going to start giving something away, I'm going to have to start giving something up. And that's, that's unsettling. I understand that. And so what happens is that our fixation on the fact that we don't have enough money, it makes us lose sight of the bigger picture, of thinking about eternity, about making our lives matter, because we're too busy stressing over Christmas gifts and vacations and uniforms and streaming service subscriptions and whatever else we're paying for, and we don't realize that money has outflanked us and it's taken over our hearts. We don't realize that it has a stranglehold on our mind. And we don't even see it coming. But then there's a third belief that I think we slip into that it's similar, but it's slightly different. And it's this, that I don't have enough. I don't have enough. And this isn't necessarily the person who's concerned because they're living paycheck to paycheck. This person is basically saying like, look, I'm not really on the brink of disaster, but man, just a little higher number in my bank account would give me the security that I'm 
looking for. Man, if I just get to that threshold, I'm going to be ready to be more generous. And again, I'm so guilty of this. This is not being me being judgmental. What I tell myself is, hey, look, once I'm there in my bank account, it's going to be easy to be generous because I will have enough. But let me just ask, didn't we say that two car upgrades ago? Didn't we say that three raises ago? Didn't we say that two decades ago? I mean, the line just keeps on moving, doesn't it? And that's why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's just hard. That's what Jesus said. Because once you get a taste for self-reliance, once you get a taste for the security that comes in the form of money, it ends up being really enticing and incredibly powerful. It's hard for the rich to choose to live a life invested in what actually matters for eternity. And if it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus said it is, with that in mind, guess who is front and center in the next chapter of Luke? A man who's described this way in Luke 19, verse 2, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Wealthy. So if you're tracking, we can assume this doesn't end well, right? I mean, this guy, he might want a life that matters. He might want a little slice of Jesus, but it's going to be too hard, right? Because money already has a grip on his soul. Well, let's find out what happens. Verse 2. Um, I'll give you the full verse. It says, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So look, he's got kind of a weird name. His name's Zacchaeus. If Richie gets a nickname, this guy can too. We'll call him Zach, all right? So we got Richie and we got Zach. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this guy, Zach, he's actually pretty famous. Um, and the reason that he's famous and probably well-remembered is because of how he's described. Check out verse three. It says, he wanted to see who Jesus was. And you're like, oh, that's nice, right? I mean, he's, he's a public figure. So he's probably, you know, an important guy. He's really dashing and strong. He has this commanding presence. No, no, look what it says the rest of the verse, verse three. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. This poor guy. I mean, he gets his one shot. He gets included in the Bible, stuck right in there. And the one feature they decide to include is that he's short. Man, if I'm Zach, I would be ticked. I'd be like, come on, guys. There's nothing else that you could give me. You just got to go with short, whatever. But anyway, back to the point. So he's eager to see Jesus, right? Short dude, can't see him, but he get, he's not going to let that get in his way. He's probably found his whole life, got ways to get around this, okay? So he does something cool. Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Nice work, Zach. Create a solution. I like what you're doing there. He climbs a tree. He makes sure that he gets a chance to see what Jesus is all about. But I do not want you to miss the fact that it said he was a tax collector. And that, you know, just like the IRS is probably not your favorite government agency today, unless you just got your stimulus check, in which case they probably are. But seriously, tax collectors, I mean, they were way more hated than the IRS even is today. Because they would intentionally charge people more than the actual tax rate just so that they could get rich. And the bad part was the government was totally cool with it. In fact, they expected these guys to make their money by cheating people out of their money, which is pretty grimy. So Zach, this guy is not well liked. Okay? And he's probably not the kind of guy you'd be thinking would be wondering, like, how can I make a difference with my life? He's a little bit of a scumbag. All right. So the fact that he even wants to see Jesus at all, it's supposed to be a little bit surprising. 
But what's even more surprising is how Jesus responds. Look at this in verse five. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Oh, shoot. Like, what is happening right now? Jesus is going to give this tax collector a shot. And we we already know Zach's pretty eager. So he welcomes Jesus into his house. And guess what happens? Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is insane. Okay, this is way out of left field. He just stands up and spontaneously gives away 50% of his net worth. And it's not just 50%, because in addition to that, he's paying back four times anybody he's ever cheated. And his whole income is cheating people. So that's a lot of money. I have no clue what situation this is going to put him in financially. But let's just say it's somewhere between 50 and 75% of his net worth and income. Think about what a huge decision that is. It's crazy. I mean, we don't know if Zacchaeus was married or not, but I'm just guessing Mrs. Zach, she ain't thrilled about this, right? This is insane. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse nine. He says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this house? The scumbag tax collector gets salvation now? I mean, didn't Jesus just say it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? That didn't seem that hard. And wait Also, if you're tracking, Richie was told he had to give 100% of his income away. So how is Zach getting away with only giving away 50%? Now, I have so many questions. But I, I think what's most pressing is the question, is this what I have to do to follow Jesus? Right? I mean, is this what it takes to get eternal life? If I'm going to live a life that matters, do I have to sell 50% of my stuff and hopefully it adds up to enough that I can buy my way into a life that matters and into heaven? The answer is... No. The reason that 50% was enough for Zach and 100% wasn't even enough for Richie is that it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's about their heart. It's about faith. What Zacchaeus reflects is a heart that viewed God and money differently. His encounter with Jesus gave him a new perspective on what actually matters and it changed the way that he saw his own wealth. So he ends up countering the three beliefs we saw with Richie with three accurate or true beliefs, correct views about money. And first of all, instead of believing it's my money, Zacchaeus came to believe it's your money, meaning it's God's money. He's saying it's yours, Jesus. And as hard as this is to believe for us, God owns everything. I mean, again, I know it feels like your money, but it's really not. (laughs) The Bible is really, really clear on this. Everything in the world belongs to God. We're just stewards. And I love what the Bible says in Psalm 50. God is talking to his people in Psalm 50 verse 12. And it says this, if I were hungry, again, this is God. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. I mean, God's fine. He's got this. And it kind of reminds me of my kids. Again, we have two boys, Grayson and Lincoln. Grayson's three, Lincoln's one. And when they're playing, the word mine comes out of Grayson's mouth, the three-year-old, about a hundred times a minute, okay? And that's infuriating on a lot of levels, one of which is that Lincoln's young enough, he doesn't know what that means anyway. So it's like, this isn't even helping you, Grayson. Why do you do this? But in my annoyance and in my incredible parenting skills, I will usually say something like, no, Grayson, that's not yours. 
You don't own anything. You don't have any personal property. Everything you ever touch is mine, and I allow you to play with it. So give that tiny little cute piano toy back to your little brother. And you can tell I'm a pretty good parent. Uh, Maybe not. Whatever. It's a silly situation, and it's ridiculous with kids. But that's how we are with our stuff, with our money. It feels like it's ours, but God has to remind us it's always been his. And if we begin to see ourselves as stewards of our money, then we would be much more willing to put it to good use, especially in ways that are going to push along God's agenda in the world. I mean, it's all his anyway, right? We might as well willingly invest it in what he cares about. And that's one of the keys to a life that matters, and that's what Zach began to believe. And the second perspective shift that he models for us is instead of asking, what about my needs? He begins to say, what about others' needs? That's a correct view of how we should handle money. A good question. What about others' needs? Instead of mine, I'm going to think about other people. And do you see how focused he is on giving to the poor? And then on top of that, he compounds his generosity by fixing relationships in his community between him and others by paying people back. The moment his heart was given over to pleasing Jesus, the needs of others became his primary concern. He's no longer amassing wealth. He's not trying to become more rich. His lifestyle is radically changed in order to see the needs of others met. And that kind of embodies that final transition for us, which is a belief that instead of I don't have enough, to believe that you are enough, meaning God. God, you are enough. What if, what if, rather than chasing the next multiple of 10 in our bank account. What if we came to believe that in Jesus, I have all that I need? What if we really believed that? I mean, Zach clearly gave up the goal of stacking up cash. I mean, he had it made. He could literally legally extort and become wealthy for the whole rest of his life and never stop. But instead, he gave it away, believing that Jesus was worth it. And I wonder if we've come to that same conclusion. Have we yet come to believe that Jesus is worth more than a big investment portfolio or amazing cars or houses? Have we come to believe that Jesus is himself enough? That's a hard question. But the bigger question I want to leave you with is this. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? When you look back on your life, do you want to be Richie or Zach? Which one of these guys lived a life that mattered? Who spent their life and invested it in something that would make an eternal difference? Was it the guy who left sad as he turned his back on Jesus? Sad because he knew that leaving his money behind would mean he would lose everything he cared about? Or was it the guy who left everything that used to seem important behind for a savior who he knew was worth so much more? I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I think that the right answer is very clear and perfectly illustrated by my friend, Michael. Check this out. Two years ago, I wasn't feeling well, went to the hospital and thought that maybe I had bronchitis because a cold went through our house. Everybody got rid of it and I didn't. Got a chest x-ray and found out that I had a metastasizing tumor in my left lung. Got it biopsied, found out that I had terminal stage four cancer in my brain, stomach, 
liver, spine, and pretty much I was told to get my affairs in order because it was, the end was near. With this type of diagnosis, 75% of the people die within one year of diagnosis. 5% of the people live longer than two years. So I'm already two years in. So as far as how much time I have left, it's not much. Once I got my diagnosis, I really wanted to make a difference. I wanted to finally do what it is that I was supposed to be doing all along. Stop making excuses, this is it. So I got in contact with the people at Northridge Church. They're the ones who focused my willingness to give and how that can be most effective. The people at Northridge Church allowed me to walk the path that I should have been walking my whole life, but always made an excuse. Once you know you're dying, there are no more excuses. That path was through Care Portal especially. One particular time when we found a Care Portal need, it was a bunch of clothes for a bunch of kids. We got all this stuff together and brought it to the family. And it, I could not believe that people in my community lived in such a way that made me sick to my stomach. The children that were in this home the need, every single thing that you take for granted, having glass in the windows, having electricity turned on in the house when it's cold. These people were suffering in such a way that I've never suffered. And to see that that was so close to me in my community, it changed me and it made me realize what it is I was supposed to be doing. The care portal in particular really means something to me because to see families in my community suffer that way and know that there's people tripping over materials in their house that could help those people, anything that I can do to facilitate that is what I feel obligated to do. I really wish that it didn't take a stage four cancer diagnosis and to be facing the end of my life, to be living the way I should have been living the whole time. I feel lucky that I had enough time in between my diagnosis and the time I do eventually die to figure out that yes, that 2000 year old story is there for a reason. Every morning I have to make a choice. Do I get up, take my medicine, and be in pain that whole day? Or do I stay in bed and take my medicine and manage my pain? And as long as there's more days that I get up and I figure out ways to give and to help and to do what it is I'm supposed to do, then I know that I'm still making a difference. I have to choose to get up, take the pain, and figure out how to make someone else's life easier because it makes my life better. That's a life that matters. Somebody who gets it. And if we're going to live a life that matters, if we're going to do that, if we're going to begin each day with the end in mind, if we're going to invest our short life into something that actually counts, 
There's a commitment I think we need to make when it comes to our finances. I think we need to make a commitment to give more than you get, to give more than you get. And I don't, look, I don't literally mean that you have to give away more money than you keep for yourself. I'm, I'm not necessarily meaning that, although maybe you should. <laughs> I mean, God has done that kind of a radical work in people's lives before we read about it. But for most people, I just mean, I think we need to be characterized to become committed to the idea that we would view money properly, that we would believe those correct things about it, that we'd be characterized by a sense of being quick to invest in things that make an eternal difference and a little slower to invest in things that just make our lives a little more comfortable. <laughs> like what Michael said, hopefully we won't all need a terminal diagnosis before we're committed to making people's lives and their eternities better through our money and our resources and our investments and our time. And I honestly don't know what that means for you. Like in terms of next steps, I can't necessarily say. Maybe, maybe it means you just need to get on a budget. <laughs> it could be that simple when it comes to your money. Or maybe you, you need to get on board with Care Portal, what Michael was so excited about, meeting needs in our community. Maybe you need to text Northridge to 77977 and make that first or a recurring contribution to a community of people that's making a difference here and around the world. I'm not sure what it looks like for you. But I know that I'm personally unwilling to wait for a flashing sign that tells me my life is about to end because the truth is, that's true for all of us. Our life is short. We only get one shot. We need to begin with the end in mind. Who do I want to become? When it comes to my money, what do I want to look back on my life and believe to be true, to be able to say with confidence it was invested in something that matters? And if that's what I want, if I can envision that goal, what do I need to do today in order to make that a reality in the end? But maybe you're here today and you're getting the impression that all I want you to do is give money to the church and that's somehow gonna make you right with God. Man, that would be a tragic takeaway. It's definitely not what I'm saying. Because what happened to Zacchaeus was not just that he had less money, it's that salvation came to his house did you notice the difference? Richie, he goes away sad. Zach, he experienced salvation. He was made right with God, not because he gave away money, but because he demonstrated faith. And faith is the difference between the ending of those two stories. Faith is what brings you into a relationship with God. No amount of money, no serving, no giving, no anything that you could do could outdo the wrongness that's inside all of our hearts. And I would suspect if you're tuning in with us that you have a sneaking suspicion that something's not 100% right inside of your heart. And look, you might not think you're all bad, and I don't think most of us really do because we're full of pride and all kinds of things, but that sense that you don't even really live up to your own standards sometimes, that part of you, that is called sin. And even the tiniest drop of that in your soul puts you at eternal odds with God. But God was willing to step into our situation and resolve it for us by allowing Jesus to take the punishment that our wrong choices deserved. By dying for us, Jesus became a substitute, a replacement for us so that we are able to come into a relationship with God because the barrier of our sin is gone. But all of that amazing stuff, I mean, that can only happen after we are willing to accept the gift of salvation that God offers through Jesus. And that acceptance, that belief is called faith. And that faith is a work that God does in your heart. 
And if you wanna take that step today, if you have a desire to take that step, then you can know for certain that God is already at work in you. And I would challenge you to do it today. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. And that could be you today. Salvation can come to your house. This is way bigger than money. (laughs) It's way bigger than budgeting or anything else. We're convinced, in fact, that you can't do anything that will please God to achieve any of his standards without the forgiveness that he offers us in the first place. You can't generate it. And I would love to offer you a chance to experience and to demonstrate that faith, that belief right now so that salvation can come to you today. If you want to talk to God about that, you can go ahead and do that right now. If you don't feel like you have the words to do that, you can pray along with me right now. And I'd encourage all of our church to be praying along with those who maybe are making that decision right now. Let's pray. Again, if you want to use these words, feel free. God, we recognize that we're broken, that our own standards we don't even meet, and we certainly don't meet your perfect ones. And we also know that without your intervention, we would remain broken. And so today, I know that there are people who want to have that brokenness restored, to come into a relationship with you. And so I pray that they would take this step of faith, that they would simply declare their brokenness that only you can resolve, that you did through Jesus on the cross, and that they would state that Jesus is their Lord, that he died for their sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer those sins, and that they are accepting in faith your free gift of salvation. And I pray that today, people would be genuinely believing that incredible promise. And as a result of it, that salvation would come to their house. We pray all of this in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. And if that's you, if maybe you just prayed that prayer, you accepted that only Jesus can solve your sin problem and you've placed your faith in him, then I would love for you to take your first step of obedience and that is to please tell somebody. This would be a terrible time to be all alone with your brand new faith. We want to walk with you. So maybe text the person who invited you, or maybe you're sitting on the couch next to the person who finally got you to watch. Tell them, or you can tell us, please just text trust, the word trust, to 585-210-8564. There's a real live human waiting on the other side of that line. If you text trust, we would love to get you information, a Bible, ways that you can take your first baby steps in faith. We would love to walk alongside you. We'd be honored to be part of your faith journey. Or if you've really honestly got any questions, we're incredibly grateful that you've joined us. And as a church community, we want to be praying for you. We want to be walking with you. We recognize that in this brand new month, none of us were expecting to be living life this way, but we want to be with you. We want to be praying for you. So you can text CONNECT to that same number, 585-210-8564. Again, real life human on the other side. You text CONNECT. We can get you information about FPU, that, that uh, budgeting program that can help you destroy debt. If you want to get into a community group, you want to get into Starting Point, you just got questions about faith, anything, we would love to be there for you during this time. Even if you just want somebody to pray for you, we will, we'd love to do that in whatever ways that we can. You can also, of course, always visit our website, northridgerochester.com. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for joining, and we'll see you next week.